The scripture reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 2 through 50. Saul and the Israelite army assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah, where they arranged their battle lines to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites on another hill, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath. He was from Gath. He was close to seven feet tall. Goliath stood and called to Israel's troops, Why do you come out to prepare for battle? Am I not the Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose for yourself a man so he may come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and strike me down, we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, you will become our servants and will serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy Israel's troops this day. Give me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistine, they were upset and very afraid. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied to David, you aren't able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a boy. He has been a warrior from his youth. David replied to Saul, your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David went on to say, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, go, the Lord will be with you. He took his staff in his hand, picked out five smooth stones from the stream, and placed them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag took the sling in hand and approached the Philistine. The Philistine kept climbing closer to David with the shield bearer walking in front of him. When the Philistine looked carefully at David, he despised him, for he was only a ruddy and handsome boy. The Philistine said to David, Am I God, dog that you are coming after me with sticks? Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come here to me so I can give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the, the wild animals of the field. But David replied to the Philistine, You are coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am not coming against you with the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land, and all the land will realize that Israel has a God, and all this assembly will know that that is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into our hand. The Philistine drew steadily closer to David to attack him. When David quickly ran toward the battle line to attack the Philistine, David reached into his hand, reached his hand into the bag and took out a stone. He slung it, striking the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deeply into his forehead, and he fell down with the face to the ground. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with just the sling and the stone. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David did not even have a sword in his hand. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship, and it's uh, my pleasure to Add my welcome to, to that of my co-pastor, Mike Stroh, this morning. Thank you, Mr. Goodland, for reading that long portion of Scripture. We sort of cut in the strategic parts, so if you were following along, you'd see. Um, we are continuing this morning in our sermon series on the life of David. Pursuing God's heart is what we've entitled it. And we've come to this story this morning of 
of David and Goliath, and I sort of feel like 20 years in the Marine Corps and a year as a student at the Amphibious Warfare School, a year as a student at the Command and General Staff College, a year as a student at the National War College, a master's degree in military strategic studies and national security decision-making has led me to this moment, never mind six years at Dallas Seminary. Um, I've got it trimmed down to about three hours um, at the urging of my children, but, um, but my wife has honestly talked me off the ledge of some really dumb ideas about how to deliver this sermon this morning. But I'm curious if there's anybody here in the room who is unfamiliar with this story. You've not heard of David and Goliath. Well, nobody. Well, some make the claim that second only to the story of the resurrection of Jesus, that this story is the most well-known story of the Bible. And I can't validate that. But I think there's something to the fact that this story sticks with us. I think it's an American thing, it might be a human thing that we all favor the underdog. And this is the ultimate underdog story. David, a 13 or 15-year-old boy, slightly less in age than our scripture reader this morning, battling this seven to nine-foot giant, depending on which version of the Bible you read. We, we favor the underdog. And I think it has to do with our a natural longing that God has placed in our heart for fairness and justice. We don't like to see the little guy being taken advantage of by the big guy. And I think that with bearing the image of God who chooses what the world thinks is foolish to shame the wise and what the world thinks is weak to shame the strong, as, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, I think that resonates with us. Well, as a young child myself, way back in the day, this is back in the days of handwriting, rotary phones, network programming on television, um, I was a fan of a cartoon called Underdog. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with it, but um, Underdog. It was a parody of Superman with this dog dressed in a red suit and a blue cape. He was really Shoeshine Boy, if you look at the upper left of the slide there. That was his, his name was really his vocation. And whenever there was trouble, Shoeshine Boy would race to the nearest phone booth and, and become underdog. Well, we, we love the underdog. And the story of David and Goliath holds sway over the human imagination to such a degree that even in our secular culture, the phrase David and Goliath has a, has a meaning that denotes this situation where the smaller, weaker opponent faces the bigger, much stronger opponent. And it's an odd paradox, isn't it, that, that we as humans who we, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we like power and control and influence. We want to have our way, and yet we are sad when the Little baby gazelle is captured by the cheetah or the lioness. And we cheer when the underdog sports opponent beats the favored rival. It's an odd paradox, which brings us to giants. Giants have, have occupied a place in the mythology and folklore of, of every culture. 
going all the way back to the earliest recorded history, if you will, or mythology or folklore. Giants, they, they represent the most ominous of foes. They evoke these ideas of, of superhuman strength and formidable ability while reminding us of our own frailty and mortality. Even underdog saves the city from a giant in one version of the opening credits. And while excessive growth and significantly above average height is a real and rare medical condition, you can Google giantism, not now, and you'll see photos of eight and a half foot tall human beings, men and women throughout history, throughout all cultures. It's a, it's a rare medical condition among humans. But the influence of giants on our imagination probably has more to do with cognitive distortion. It's unrealistic thinking and negative exaggeration as, as we process what we're experiencing. With cognitive distortion, we, we interpret things to be worse than they are. Psychologists call it catastrophizing. Some of you might be familiar with, some of you might have experienced it. I think we all are subject to cognitive distortion to some degree or another. Some examples, you fail an important exam in school and you think that you have no future. You receive bad feedback at work and you begin to worry that your career is over. Your partner criticizes what you're beginning, what you're wearing, and now your fear is, oh my gosh, next they're gonna, they're gonna break up with me. Insurmount, or excuse me, surmountable things become catastrophic things. Catastrophizing causes us to see ourselves as the underdog. But more than that, worse than that, it, catastrophizing causes us to see ourselves as the hopeless underdog. Well, to whatever degree that you're subject to cognitive distortion, this story of David and Goliath, it, it speaks to part of our human need. We all face some giants in our lives, right? That's the, that's the easy softball as a preacher to go, you know, what's the message of the sermon? We're, we're all facing giants, and we are. But God's message for us this morning isn't so much how to do battle with our giants as, as much as it is how we are to reframe them in the proper perspective. And where we enter the narrative of 1 Samuel this morning, where the Philistines and the Israelites have, have drawn a line of battle in the valley of Elah. By all worldly appearances, Israel looks to be the underdog here. But are they? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, you are the almighty God who rules over every army, whether it be heavenly, cosmic, or earthly. Father, help us to see you in this scripture help us to see the foreshadowing of your son, Jesus, and open our hearts and minds to what it is that you would have to speak to each of us this morning, and help me to be clear. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, ancient societies were warrior cultures. As I say that, I wonder if modern societies aren't warrior cultures as well to some degree. But warfare was a way of life in the sense that it occurred more or less continuously, particularly in the ancient Near East. The Bible is a book of battles, both divine 
and human. And for Israel, the the Philistines were one of their perennial enemies. We see reference to the Philistines all the way back in the book of Genesis. And they certainly figured throughout the Old Testament. The Philistines had come to this area known as the Fertile Crescent from the southern part of Greece. They were a seafaring people and they had invaded Egypt around 11,000 B.C. Sorry, that B.C. thing trips me up. But, um, and they ultimately occupied a, a southwest part of the coast that they called Philistia. Philistia is actually the root of the word Palestine that we know today. So the, the, the Philistines are modern day, what we would call today in some sense, Palestinians. But whereas being a Philistine, calling someone a Philistine rather, might be a, an insult, right? It, you know, you call someone a Philistine, the idea is they're uncultured. They're stupid, but the the Philistines were far from that. Archaeology proves them to be a a highly accomplished people, smart, uh, accomplished warfighters, accomplished in metallurgy. They were a force to be reckoned with. They had a highly trained and highly equipped military. They were skilled on land and sea. And until David conquered them much later in the books of Samuel, They were a persistent military threat to Israel, but a cultural threat as they lured Israelites into pagan worship. Well, as our scene opens this morning, the the Philistines have, have left their primary cities along the coast. And you see there, as denoted with that green arrow, they've they've transitioned through these lowlands to the Judean foothills. And they've taken up a position which is threatening to Israel. It's, it's strategically significant because where the Philistines sought to, to draw their line of battle presented both a threat to Bethlehem and Jerusalem and be, beyond Jerusalem to Gibeah. Gibeah was where Saul had established his capital as the king of Israel. He had a royal complex there. So the Israelites really had no choice but to stop the Philistine advance. So strategically, the Philistines were incredibly smart. They knew what they were doing, and they took up this position that would either force Israel to confront them on the battlefield and hopefully lose, or leave Israel vulnerable to attacking and rolling up their most important cities. Well, from a military standpoint, the the Philistine position was also tactically advantageous. This is a picture of the Valley of Elah. It's not looking north, actually. It's, it's actually looking eastward. But it was tactically significant because occupying the high ground on the west side of this valley, they had a very clear view of the battlefield. They were choosing the time and place where they would engage the Israelites. They would either, in this position, they would either force the Israelites into a battle in this open valley, which was actually restricted terrain, which would give the Israelites not a lot of options for places to go, or it would facilitate the Philistines to do any number of, of military things. As we look at the first three verses of our chapter this morning, it, it sets the stage for us that, that Saul and the Israelites have, have assembled across from the Philistines in this valley. 
He's mustered his forces that is largely volunteers to face off against this highly professional army. And this stalemate has ensued. If you look at this picture, this is from modern-day Google Earth. It gives you a sense. That's the Valley of Elah in the middle there. The Philistine position is at the bottom, and the Israelites occupy that piece of terrain in the middle of the slide. But what I want you to take note of is that, that red line, which really, as the Bible tells us, is the extent of the Philistine positions. They've sort of created this convex shape, right? In, in the military, we call that a fire sack. You don't want to be in there because the forces can fire on you from the sides. The Israelites, they've taken up their position where this blue line appears. Moving a little too quick here, sorry. Could you advance the slide one for me? No? Okay, sorry. Um, the Israelites are on the other side. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a position of advantage. And so this professional army, this highly trained, organized, and equipped army, they've, they've got the strategic initiative here. They're putting the Israelites, as we say, on the horns of a dilemma. Saul either has to attack straight into their highly organized defenses or he has to withdraw and retreat. And so they're, they're stuck here. But the Israelites also have something else they're employing on the battlefield. On top of a, a highly strategic position, on top of a tactically advantageous position, on top of the fact that they're more equipped, more experienced, better war fighters, the Philistines have a strategic weapon. They have uh, Goliath. Verse 4 of our text calls him a champion. The Hebrew term that is translated champion is literally translated the man in the space between two armies. Goliath is their champion. He was unmatched in terms of size and his armor and his weapons as the scripture tells. His body armor alone was substantial in its weight and its capability to protect him. And he, and he carried a mix of weapons, a bronze javelin, a, a spear about eight feet long with an iron tip that weighed 15 pounds. I don't know if you have a 15-pound weight laying around your house, but I'd encourage you to pick it up and imagine that on the end of an eight-foot pole and understand the amount of strength and agility it might take to employ that effectively. And on top of all of that, Goliath had a sword, just in case. But Goliath also had additional protection. He had a sort of a body-sized shield that a, a shield bearer would move before him and, and add this extra layer of protection. It was a, a formidable sight. And as we heard this morning in verses 8 through 10, the Philistines have, have thrown down the gauntlet of champion warfare. Now, champion warfare was not uncommon in the ancient times. It's a, a type of battle where the outcome of the conflict is, is determined by single combat between a champion from either side. It's a duel to determine the fate of both armies and the honor of the nations. And the Philistines have laid down this challenge to the Israelites. 
And as we see in verse 11, Saul and the Israelites, they're upset. They're very afraid. And with this distortedly large and formidable warrior, Goliath, at the forefront of the Philistine challenge, the, the cognitive distortion makes this difficult situation appear even more hopeless for the Israelites. Who is the logical choice for Israel to face off against Goliath? It's Saul. Saul is the logical choice. Among Israelites, the scripture tells us he was a head and shoulders above the average Israelite. He's the biggest person they have to offer. He's a giant among Israelites, both in terms of his physical stature as well as his military experience and prowess. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we see Saul and his son Jonathan waging warfare. Saul is an experienced warfighter. He's also the best equipped among the Israelites. He's one of the very few who actually has armor. And he's the king. Kings are expected to lead. Kings are expected in this time to lead their forces in battle. And his own son is with him. Jonathan, himself an experienced and accomplished warfighter and undoubtedly the king's son, he's well equipped himself. But on hearing Goliath's words, Saul and the Israelites, they're catastrophizing. The law of military expediency says, if you want it bad, you get it bad. Well, the Israelites wanted a king real bad. They got the king that they wanted. They got King Saul. And now they find themselves under his leadership paralyzed by fear and cowardice. And for a relatively long time, the Bible tells us, 40 days, twice a day, Goliath comes out and he issues this challenge. And or Israel is paralyzed with fear and indecisiveness. And rather than facing the Philistine champion to defend Israel in its honor, rather than negotiating a diplomatic solution or devising a military plan, all things that this king should be expected to do, Saul has taken up the strategy of, of offering extravagant incentives, hoping someone else's son will go and face off with Goliath. Enter the king that God has chosen for Israel, David. As I said, he, scholars estimate just by doing some backwards math from when the Bible tells us he became king at what age we can deduce he was somewhere between 13 and 15. His, his three oldest brothers are volunteers in Saul's army. And so David's earthly father, Jesse, sends his son David to to check on and care for his children. It's a common fatherly thing to do. One of my older sons is a captain in the army. He's in Iraq and Syria this week, preparing for a deployment. I check on him every day because I have find my friends on my iPhone. 
Jesse, sorry, he cares for his children. So he sends David with some bread and some cheese, a care package. Modern days, it's coffee and beef jerky and coffee creamer. (laughs) He sends David to go check on his brothers. And at the same time, our heavenly father has sent his anointed one, David, to check on, encourage, and save God's children. Now, I know some in this sanctuary, you haven't known the love of your earthly father. Or you've been wounded by the way that your father loved or, or failed to love you. And so I just, I just want us all to remember how much our Heavenly Father loves us. Father, Son, and Spirit, God loves you more than you and I can fathom. God loves us so much. God loves his people. God loves his creation so much that he and his angels battle for us every day. Well, David, after a a 20-mile hike, mind you, through the Judean hill country, the scripture says he got up early in the morning and he left. That 20-mile hike at a military pace of four kilometers an hour is about a 10-mile, 10-hour hike. I find myself wondering if he didn't jog it, which would have cut that significantly. the, The dude's a machine. That's all I'm saying. I'd send my son, Cade, to check on my son, Brian, but Cade doesn't like cheese, so um, that won't happen. But, but David arrives just as the Israelites and the Philistines have, have taken up their positions for this twice-a-day showdown. And David finds his brothers just as Goliath has laid down this challenge. Look at verses 22 through 27. After David had entrusted his cargo to the care of the supply officer, he ran to the battlefront. All of Israel is cowering, and David runs to the battlefront. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were doing. As he was speaking with them, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines. He spoke the way he usually did, and David heard it. When all the men of Israel saw this man, they retreated from his presence And we're very afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? He does so to defy Israel. But the king will make the man who can strike him down very wealthy. He will give him his daughter in marriage, and he will make his father's house exempt from tax obligations in Israel. David asked the men who were standing near him, What will be done for the man who strikes down this Philistine and frees Israel from this humiliation? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? The soldiers told him what had been promised, saying, This is what will be done for the man who can strike him down. Well, we read earlier, if you read chapter 16 in verse 14, that the the Spirit of the Lord had turned away from Saul. In fact, he's even being tormented by a spirit that God is allowing to torment him. Saul's cognitive distortion goes all the way to the depths of his spirit. The whole of the Israelite army is in a chronic state of stress. 
And the Israelites retreat and cower in great fear when Goliath lays down his challenge, right? And Saul, he's, his only plan is inaction and bribery. And yet David, the true king of Israel, shows up and he sets about to reframe the situation. You see... The essential idea behind reframing is that the frame through which a person views a situation determines their point of view. And when that frame is shifted, the meaning changes. And thinking and behavior also often change along with it. Cognitive reframing is the antidote to cognitive distortion. Where a Saul is looking at this situation through his worldly lens... David looks upon Israel's predicament with God's perspective. Look at verse, the first half of verse 37. David went on to say, The Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. If biblical historians were to ever put a label on this moment, and they haven't, they should call it the Davidic Reformation. Dad jokes or sad jokes, people. I've been waiting all week to deliver that line. <laughs> Apparently, I need to work on my timing. The Davidic Reformation, you know, Protestant Reformation, Davidic Reformation. Anyway. I've tried. Saul accepts David's appeal to face off against Goliath. To, to David's reframing of this situation, what does Saul say to him? He says, go, the Lord is with you. David became Saul's humanistic solution to the problem of this giant and the Philistines, but, but most importantly, in the part that we shouldn't miss here, the central message of this sermon, I dare I say, is that David was God's divine answer to both the challenge and the challenger. When God's people face challenges and challengers, God provides us a divine perspective with which to engage our enemies, if you will. David was God's anointed one, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13, when, when Samuel anointed David with the oil to be the king, the Hebrew word is, is here is Mashiach, from where we get Messiah. Samuel messiahed David. David became Israel's Messiah when Samuel anointed him as king. And the word tells us that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day onward. But the story of David also points us toward another son in the line of Jesse. Another one anointed by God. The one true Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth who, who at the cross delivered the world from the giants of sin and death. And who having risen from the grave to his seat at the right hand of the Father, has, has sent us the Spirit, has allowed the Spirit to rush upon us so that we may likewise share in this anointing. Brothers and sisters, with the same Holy Spirit that, that rushed upon David, we, we too are inspired with the perspective of God to, to be able to reframe every situation, every seemingly hopeless situation we encounter.
God has given us the ability to do that. And so David prepares to go forth as Israel's champion to to battle the Philistine champion, Goliath. Saul attempts to arm David with his own armor, but, but David refuses them. He chooses to go with the things that he used as a shepherd, his staff and five smooth stones to use as projectiles with his slingshot. Now, this slingshot isn't a, a child's toy, mind you. The sling was and remains a, a deadly weapon. It's able to propel stones at lethal velocities over distances up to 100 yards. David wasn't just bringing child's play to this encounter. As tempting as it may be for some to, to read too much into the five smooth stones, I think David's just grabbing ammo. He's got a weapon system that he's familiar with, that he's skilled with, that he's confident in, and he says, I need five stones. That's as much as I can carry. That's about as much time as I'm going to have. If I can't do it in five, it's probably game over. And so he faces off with Goliath. His, his choice was to, to do what he could, where he was and with what he had. And God, friends, is calling on each of us to do the same. So a question that we might ask ourselves, are, are you and I deploying the gifts that God has given us? Wherever we are and to whomever we're with. And when we do so, do we do it knowing that, that God is with us and that he's leading us and that he's guiding us and that he's growing us? Is that our frame of reference as Christians? Or do we just want to huddle in this sanctuary on a Sunday safe from the threat of the world and all the giants out there? David was making a smart choice with what he chose to go to battle with. And as a result, Goliath was about to find himself in violation of an important warfighting axiom, and that is never bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> Goliath is armed with a spear and a pike and a sword, and David is armed with a highly lethal weapon that he can employ from a distance. Goliath is suddenly at a huge disadvantage just in that alone. And despite of his fearsome looks and his well-earned reputation as a warrior, Saul, to trying to discourage David, said, Goliath's been a warrior from his youth. You're just a good-looking boy. And despite of Goliath, he had some inherent limitations. The, the size and weight of his weapons made him hard to wield and bring to bear. His outsized stature, most likely the result of this medical condition that today we know is giantism or acromegaly, those conditions bring with it some deleterious side effects, among them chronic joint pain, limited mobility, and, and impaired vision. You've got this young, agile, young man moving quickly. You've got Goliath, who's sort of a lumbering giant, hoping all these things and this armor is going to going to fend off his antagonist. You see, knowing God, David has sized up 
this Philistine enemy. And he's made this wise choice. Because David knows who his God is, and David knows what he's capable of. Well, we already heard how it plays out, right? Goliath curses David by his tiny Philistine gods, lowercase g. And David replies, look at verse 45 to 47. Goliath taunted David, but David replied to the Philistine. He says, you are coming against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I am coming against you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies, who you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give you the corpses of the Philistine army, you and the corpses of the Philistine army, to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the land will realize that Israel has a God. And all this assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into our hands. It's, it's a beautiful speech that dramatizes the conflict between Israel and the enemy nations around her. All of Israel, as the people of God, are, are facing the nations, if you will. And it also serves as a reminder of, of the spiritual battle that plays out around all of us as members of the body of Christ. Well, David rushes forward. We know how the story goes into battle. He faces Goliath. But I love verse 50. It's sort of the, the mic drop moment, if you will. David prevailed over the Philistine with just the sling and the stone. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David did not even have a sword in his hand. He draws Goliath's own sword, cuts off his head. The Philistine army is shaken and they retreat in a panic. And the Israelites now emboldened begin to pursue them all the way across the Lowlands of Shephelah, all the way to the gates of the Philistine cities along the coast. Well, as we come to a close here, I, I want us to look at the last phrase of verse 54. It says, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put Goliath's weapons in his tent. He put Goliath's weapons in his tent. Friends, it's a mistake for you and I to think that, that we should appropriate the world's ways and use to advance the various causes of the kingdom. David putting Goliath's weapons in his tent, and we see later on in Scripture that, that he one day retrieves Goliath's sword. But we live in a different age, friends. We live in the church age. We live in a post-resurrection age. And God is not calling us to take the world's ways and the world's weapons and to use them to, to fight for God. You see, the spirit of, of this age and the course of this fallen world would tell us to come against our opposition with the, the same distorted perspective, the same weapons and tactics that the world uses. They're little gods of fear and anger, power and control, and even weapons 
and violence when we think we can justify it. That's what the world wants us to do. That, a lot of people in the church mistakenly want us to do that. But you see, God beckons us to always remember what David reminded Saul and what David proclaimed to the, to the best champion that the world could bring against God's own people. The Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. You see, when I read that verse now, I see David not taking Goliath's weapons and putting him in his tent to use them later, but to, to take Goliath's weapons and to redeem them, to reform them, to use them in, in some godly way. Not necessarily literal swords, but as Christ followers in this age of the church, we, we are to redeem and to reform the ways and the weapons of the world. That's what Jesus is calling us to. The spirit of the age tells us we have to win. We have to keep on winning. We have to win more. I don't know if you've how much TV you watch, but I'm noticing that, that alternative history has become a, a more popular subgenre in art these days, right? You've got TV series like um, For All Mankind, which posits that the Russians actually won the race to the moon and then how that plays out. Or you've got a TV show I haven't watched it, The Man in the High Castle, right? Where the Nazis have won World War II and, uh, and the communists. It's speculative fiction where, where one or more of these historical events are resolved differently than in real life. And so I, what, what if David hadn't defeated Goliath? What? What if? What if he hadn't? What if the Philistines had conquered Israel? Is God's plan thwarted? No. You see, the kingdom of God has advanced through history in God's ways, not, not our ways. And often as a result of great suffering and injustice, particularly for his people. And when God's people are seemingly defeated, destroyed, and persecuted, God's kingdom has always advanced. You see, David, friends, isn't the hopeless underdog in this contest. And neither are we. And may we, like David, reframe our circumstances, whatever those may be. And may we face whatever giants we're facing as a community, as a church, as individuals. May, may we face them with the right hearts, the right reasons, and the right methods. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Eternal Father, you are the God who saves. And God, we just come before you with such great thanksgiving that, um, that you've seen all of our battles, you've seen all of the things that we face, you've known all about it since before the beginning of time, and not a single part of it is outside of your view, your control, your hands. God, we thank you for the lessons of this story and for the, the hearts of those who pursue you. We thank you for your servant David and 
the example that he is to us. May we be encouraged, God, to, to look at how we can reframe the battles that we feel like we need to fight or that we are fighting and, and see it from your perspective. And God, give us the hearts and the minds and the methods to, to engage with those around us. And where we can't, Lord, give us the faith to just stand firm knowing that no matter what happens, Lord, that, that you have defeated sin and death, that you're coming again to redeem the whole world, and that everything that we long for, Lord, everything that we hope for will come to pass for an eternity in your presence. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.